Hello and welcome to Start Your Week from the Bunker. I'm Jacob Jarvis and here with me this Monday morning to discuss what will be popping up in your news alerts in the week ahead is Yasmin Serhan of Time Magazine. Good morning, Yasmin. How are you? Good morning. I'm well, thanks. Not caffeinated yet. That was my own mistake, <laughs> but otherwise yeah, very Me good. neither. Yeah, I'm not quite there. I'm about a third of the way through a cup of coffee, which is not, not enough at this time. So uh, this week, Yasmin, Rishi Sunak is apparently embarking on Operation Get Tough, which is prompting our counter-narrative that I'm launching, Operation Get Stuffed, to question what is he up to. So he's going to move to crack down on protests in the build-up to Christmas and on small boat crossings in a bid to sort of relaunch himself and his premiership, according to Mm. the Sunday Times. Yasmin, does this just feel to you once again like a move focused on optics instead of tackling real problems? Well, I think it's a reflection of the fact that this is a prime minister who was brought in, obviously, amidst a crisis to solve a very specific crisis, which was the one in part that his predecessor, Liz Truss, started, which was sort of an economic meltdown. And and he came in and he did that, obviously, in the form of the autumn statement. I mean, obviously, the, the long term impact of that remains to be seen. But yeah, I mean, I sort of read that as reflective of of a prime minister who obviously doesn't really have much of a mandate, who wasn't elected by Conservative Party members, let alone the broader public, and who needs to have some sort of raison d'etre, mm. like some sort of, you know, purpose for, for why he's here and what his message is going to be to the public. Yeah. And and frankly, given the circumstances of his premiership, he hasn't really had the opportunity to have this sort of bigger, grander vision beyond the immediate crisis at hand. So that was sort of what I read into as, as the reason he's trying to relaunch, reset the narrative, as it were. Mm. The choices are interesting in a way seemingly obvious. I mean, cracking down on immigration, nothing new for his party, maybe it allows him to curry favor with the right of his party in particular, potentially flex his Brexiteer credentials if they want to talk about, you know, controlling borders and all that. Cracking down on climate protests, I mean, that's not really new either. This government is already in the process of pushing through the public order bill. Uh, I believe that's in the House of Lords right now. That will give the police greater powers to crack down on protest tactics, such as those currently used by climate protesters. So, you know, it feels like he's leaning on a lot of things that are already being talked about in the party. Perhaps he sees them as things that are widely unifying within the party. Mm. Certainly, you know, even though the public order bill itself is, you know, something that I'm hoping to do more reporting on this week is deeply scary, I think, from a democratic standpoint, you know, polling tells us that the public are widely not in favor of the very disruptive tactics that we may be seeing also from climate protesters coming up. So, you know, it's it seems like he's just trying to lean on whatever is going to allow him to keep the party together and maybe make it look like they have a shot at doing well in the next election. Yeah, does it feel to you like he's just sort of firefighting with the different factions in the party and everything is really just a way of going, hey, I'm going to do some stuff you like after doing so much that's just kind of seemed to annoy every single Tory in the Commons, it would feel like. Well, yeah, I mean, he was kind of brought in as a crisis manager, right? Because, I mean, they've mm. had, this is, <laughs> we, we, we've already established how many prime ministers that, that this party has had in, in recent years. They can't afford to do this again. <laughs> and I think he knows that. So what they really need is stability of some kind. And I think he's he's obviously wanted to, to bring an economic answer to, to the problem that the country was facing, but also sort of been like, I'm going to be this prime minister who's, who's not going to be brought down by various crises. I'm going to just try to appease 
and, mm. and keep this party in control and, and somewhat just, you know, for the time being. And we'll see what comes of that. I mean, so far, you know, we, we've had numerous sort of ministers get in trouble for various things. None of them have been able to bring him down thus far. So mm. studying the ship, I don't know if we could say, I mean, the, put it this way, it doesn't feel like his government is on the front page in the way that Liz Truss was all the time. And maybe that is a success for him so far. Yeah, um, he's not made uh, the Daily Star quite as big an enemy as Liz Truss managed he's to be. He's not being re- like related to a vegetable in any way. Absolutely. Yeah. He's not yeah. quite the lettuce just yet. In terms of this sort of churn of prime ministers we've had, he's giving a major speech on foreign policy later where he says countries like Russia and China plan for the long term in a way that we don't. I mean, I don't think we would like leaders that stay in power for as long as those countries. But, you know, could him being the fifth prime minister in six years clearly have something to do with that? Does that message seem a little bit jarring to you, given uh, who he is? Yeah, I mean, obviously, the, the, every prime minister is going to come in. They're going to have different mandates. They're going to, or not different mandates, but different promises, different priorities. And certainly, I mean, I think what makes Sunak different from his immediate predecessors, Liz Truss and Boris Johnson, is that you know he's he's never been foreign secretary. We don't really have much of a sense of his sort of foreign policy priorities. This notion of having robust pragmatism with with countries like Russia and China, I mean, almost kind of doesn't quite suggest the toughness particularly on China, that, that I think we heard from like Liz Truss, certainly on, on Russia. I mean, I, I have no doubt that Rishi Sunak is, is, is going to want to continue the tradition of, of being supportive of Ukraine in the way that Boris Johnson certainly was and, and Liz Truss after him, however briefly. Mm. We'll see what he says in his statement, right? But, but from the immediate reports about it, I didn't get the sense that this is going to be a major um, foreign policy turn but yeah the framing is interesting i i'll be honest i'm kind of keen to see what he says in his in his actual speech about that because it <laughs> it is a little confusing what well i mean it's not every day you, you have leaders comparing be like you know well russia and china do this and we ought to do that so yeah it feels strange to be like we need to be tough on russia and china but hey maybe they've got some things right he's not wrong <laughs> about like the the lack of long termism though as you said there's been so many leaders and and a lot of disruption and confusion but also hey it's a democracy so <laughs> yeah yeah that's a, which is a a massive perk but i mean a democracy which has ended up with rishi sunak so uh, there we go i suppose we uh, we've mentioned him being tough on immigration and he's dwelling on boat crossings, which Suella Braverman is also eyeing up with her sort of culture war, hardline stance that she wants to live up to. There is still a focus on on Manston after the death of a man who had stayed there, which may have been caused by a diphtheria infection. The Home Office is facing questions after reporting just one case at the site in Kent, despite there being 50 linked to it. On a human level, how have you felt watching this situation develop? Obviously, it's incredibly sad. I mean, you know, that people would be kept in these overcrowded and clearly unsafe centers is obviously shameful, Mm. especially in a country like Britain. You know, it's also, I think, deeply frustrating to hear that those are the circumstances that people are being kept in, especially, Mm. uh, you know, that obviously these people, whether the government wants them or not, is, you know, that they've it's their duty of care to, to, to the people that come to this country seeking asylum. And, and w- whether you determine those 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 applications to be legitimate is one thing. But, you know, obviously keeping people safe is quite another. And, and I think that's especially true when it comes to, you know, because the safety of, of channel migrants 
in Manston or any other center. When you look at diphtheria obviously being a highly contagious bacterial disease, the, the fact that you would have a potential outbreak in these centers and then these people then sent to other parts of the country. Um, there was some reporting that local public health leaders in areas where migrants have been dispatched, saying that they were frustrated by the lack of communication from the home office about the health status of those people. I mean, we've just come off the back and are still in a major international public health crisis. So, so the notion that the government is not doing everything that it can to ensure that A, people coming to this country are safe and if they are indeed sick to, to take the proper precautions, which we know fully well, whether it's quarantining, testing and all those things to, mm. to ensure that those people are safe. And, and furthermore, that it doesn't get into the general population, I think is really important because if that is the case and, and that becomes a concern, and I don't want to fear monger here, we, we don't have any indication no. that this is spread into the general population, of course, but these are the kinds of things you have to think about, right? So, you know, yeah. I, I will say that, and maybe that's because of my foreign policy beat, I tend to focus more on sort of, you know, stuff happening here, but also elsewhere in the world. I can't claim to have seen a lot of focus on on the crisis in Manston in the way that I've seen other issues. I could be wrong, though. Perhaps I've I've missed some some important front, front covers on this. But I feel like if, if it hasn't broken through and that the broader public are thinking about this in a big way, I think a potential, you know, health implications for the broader population could potentially force more attention on that issue. Do you think, yeah, that sort of side that, you know, maybe if the if the public has been able to sort of isolate this as, you know, a very horrible thing that's happening, but maybe doesn't, they don't feel sort of tied to or implicated in, do you think that this, yeah, the, a wider health issue and this spreading out in that way could make people, you know, maybe it's it's cynical, but make people think more about it. And that could build it into a, a bigger issue for the government. Potentially. I mean, yeah, to your point, I hope it doesn't, obviously. This would be, you know, a terrible crisis to have to deal with this on top of a load of other things, especially at a time of year where people are already getting sick with loads of things anyway. COVID among them, of course. I, I think that, you know, I mean, Channel boat crossings are, are not new. We've seen the stats of, of how many people are have been coming through this year. We know that they're very dangerous for the people undertaking them. We obviously know that some people are in very desperate situations. Uh, some people are trafficked. You know, it's this is not new. I think, and because of that, and because we've heard a lot about it, not just from this government but others as well, that you know, that it's something that could just sort of slip into the back of people's minds. Obviously, if there was some sort of health outbreak, that would refocus attention. But my fear is that it would potentially refocus it in the wrong way. It would be, you know, less about the people coming in and their safety and more about, well, ah, are we, are, you know, <laughs> these people are bringing dangerous disease. Yeah. We're in trouble. You know what I mean? So it's like, uh, on the one hand, yes, but on, on the other hand, I could see it going very wrong. As well as uh, the pressure on Sunak from from situation with Manston and that pressure on Bravma as well. There are also a, a range of negotiations continuing with with unions with more strikes on the horizon. What sort of disruption is there going to be in the coming weeks? Yeah, so there's, I mean, it's, it feels, it's felt very difficult to sort of keep track with all of the, the various strikes, um, just because so many sectors have, have obviously felt inclined to, um, felt felt like they've needed to take this step um, to, to get higher wages mm. for their workers. I know that the, one of the big ones to, to look to, in, in, in the, I think this week and, and in the coming weeks, is um, postal workers. Uh, the Communication Workers mm. Union has announced 10 further days of strike action. So the upcoming dates that I've seen at least are the 9th, the 11th, the 14th, the 15th, the 23rd, and the 24th. So 
obviously if you are doing Christmas shopping and you need to ship things in or send things out, that's certainly something to think about. So that could cause mm. quite a bit of disruption. Uh, the other is university workers. Um, some 70,000 are staging three walkouts this month in what their union has described as the largest coordinated action in, in that sector's history. Um, and there's also been um, similar strikes in Scotland, which have been dubbed the biggest national strike since the 1980s. So yeah, they'll be they'll be striking on um, November 30th, basically what is, an es- like many of these, an escalation is sort of a years-long dispute over pay and, and pensions. So yeah, th- those are kind of the two big ones. But of course, you know, we've we experienced rail strikes over the weekend. We've heard about nurses strikes. So yeah, there's quite a lot to, to keep track with. Yasmin, what has the government's stance been on the strikes that it's negotiating over? And can they just keep going, uh, we don't have the money forever? Obviously, the answer to that, I feel like, depends on the prime minister. Though I think very broadly, I, at least the comments that I've seen from seen from Sunak is that, you know, the, they're obviously against the strikes. I think he, I think if I'm not mistaken, Sunak made a comment about this in PMQs last week with regard to labor telling mm. their union bosses to, you know, stop the strikes. Yeah. They, I mean, I think obviously what we've seen from the strikes so far is that that sort of line isn't going to work because you're just going to get more strikes. I mean, clearly it's going to have to come mm. to a head at some point. And, and you, yeah, it's a tricky balance between, you know, obviously paying people enough to, to deal with the economic crisis that we're in, rising inflation, the fact that your money just simply doesn't get you as far as, as it would have yeah. done, while also obviously not wanting to make the inflation worse. Now, I'm not an economist, but in, in, in terms of kind of the impact of everyone getting oh, however much 11% pay rise to cope with inflation. Mm. But, but I think, you know, obviously the government's going to have to listen to these people because they've made it very clear. And I think this is across sectors and that, that you know, that this is an issue that, that needs to be addressed. And I think the fact that you're seeing historic strikes, even from sectors that don't typically strike, like nurses, yeah. um, I, I think is obviously a huge issue mm. that, that is the government is unable to ignore, especially when you're going into the winter time. I feel like, you know, the idea yeah. of nurses striking, I mean, it's clearly it's become serious enough that they're taking that step. Turning away from the UK, there are rare scenes of mass civil unrest in China with protests across the country against their zero COVID policy. Yasmin, this policy and position from the CCP obviously isn't new. What has caused this turn in feeling and made the unrest bubble up? Yeah, so the the trigger for these protests, which have been surreal to see, just, you know, obviously Mm. from afar, appears to be a deadly fire actually in Xinjiang that killed at least 10 people. Mm. It's my understanding that it was COVID restrictions that effectively, or people saw that COVID restrictions kind of prevented victims from getting the help that they need, yeah. the firefighters coming on time. So so the pro- most proximate cause really was China's draconian COVID restrictions. For Even though, of course, you know, mm. this country, of course, everyone listening to this is probably familiar with having endured with, with COVID restrictions and lockdowns for a time. In China, mm. that never really went away. Millions of people mm. have for nearly three years now been affected by mass testing, quarantines, and snap lockdowns. Um, and, and so really, the what's come to a head is all this frustration over, over this new status quo in China. And yeah, this zero COVID policy is basically exactly what it sounds. The Chinese government has basically said, you know, we, we just want to eradicate this disease. And, and what we've learned, of course, in, in our own experiences is that doesn't really work. Part of the calculus, I think, from the Chinese government is that 
vaccine uptake isn't very high in those countries, they make this argument that it's to protect elderly people. But of course, it's it's very draconian. And yeah, I think it just clearly from 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 the protests, the scale and, and the size of them kind of, you know, all around the country, people are are fed up. Does it feel like they're finally going to have to ease off on this stance? Because there's also sort of a high in COVID cases in China at the moment. So it doesn't even feel like it's it's completely working in doing the one thing it should definitely be be doing. Yeah, exactly that. As for whether the government could ease off, I mean, the Chinese government had indicated that it could ease some of its zero COVID policies. In, indeed, earlier this month, in response to public impatience, um, apparently the, the National Health Commission in the country published this plan to to refine some of the the rules, like reducing quarantine periods, easing restrictions on close contacts, things like that. But I, I don't know to what extent the, those those were ever implemented. And in, in any case, I think by that point, it was probably already too late. People were very frustrated. And I think when it comes to a point where you see people die because of, of, of the circumstances mm. that they're in, um, not because of COVID, but because of other things happening um, and that they yeah. can't get the help that they need and lead a normal life. I, I think that's, yeah, I mean, there's clearly a lot of frustration. But then again, the Chinese Communist Party and, and Xi Jinping, I mean, th- these are not leaders or parties that I think of when I think of leniency or easing off. Um, mm. So it'll be interesting to see how they respond to the public pressure. Because I think another thing that's worth mentioning is that we just haven't seen protests like this, certainly under Xi Jinping's reign. So we don't know what, I mean, we've seen them respond to protests, of course. We've, we've seen them respond to, to the protest movement in Hong Kong, for example. But in terms of mainland China and this type of sort of demonstrations, we haven't seen these before. So it's, it's hard to predict, certainly from a non-China expert like myself, what they're going to do. But they, they, if I had to guess what kind of government would stand out, it certainly wouldn't be them. There have been calls for Xi Jinping to to resign. I mean, that feels very, very unlikely to me. You know, do you feel like there is any chance of that? I mean, did he just got basically given the power to be able to rule for life a matter of weeks ago. So does it feel like that is just a, pretty much a zero possibility? Yeah, I was like I saying, mean, just given the fact that last month, he, as you say, was was got a precedent-breaking third term, um, I'm going to say no. Um, and I don't think he's the type of leader that's going to tolerate dissent for long. You know, we've we've no. seen his response um, to, to uh, as I mentioned before, the, the democracy protests in Hong Kong. You know, we've, we've seen what this government has, has done to, to protests that it deems unworthy. We've obviously seen this government impose horrible policies on on the Uyghur population in Xinjiang, sending them to to so-called re-education camps, what what many governments around the world have termed as genocide. Um, you know, th- this is not a leader or, or a government that I think is necessarily going to be all too concerned about no. certainly international pressure and, and public, I mean, domestic pressure, though, is, is a different beast. But it'll be interesting to see. But I, yeah, he's not, I certainly don't see him standing down. If anything, I, I would imagine, though, that he sees these protests especially with those calls, regardless of how sort of widespread they are, as a, as a challenge to not just the COVID policy, but also his authority. Let's segue into a, another president who is very much a former president, Donald Trump. Uh, Yasmin, how do you feel about seeing him fraternizing with someone like Nick Fuentes in recent, recent days? Unsurprised? I mean, it's for the uninitiated um and I certainly hope that's a lot of you. Um, Nick Fuentes <laughs> is this far right activist. I think he's 
kind of on YouTube, the way that he got to meeting with Trump was that Trump was having dinner with Kanye West, or Ye, I mm. should say, is now his name. And Ye brought Nick Fuentes and I think another guest along to this dinner. Um, that is certainly what the Trump team is saying. They're saying that they did not invite Fuentes, that he just kind of showed up at this dinner. But I mean, you know, you look at Donald Trump's rhetoric in the past and 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 sort of the the types of people he he has appealed to in the past. I mean, it it does not surprise me at all that he would be, you know, dining with a far right activist and with white nationalist ideas like Nick Fuentes. Do you think more backlash can mount over this or, you know, as you say, is this just kind of cashed in when it comes to Donald Trump? I mean, he has got some backlash in, indeed from people pretty close to him. His former ambassador to Israel, David Friedman, tweeted asking him to throw those bums out and to disavow them. And, and as I mentioned, Trump has already distanced himself from Fuentes. So I don't expect him to, you know, be be punished for this in any other way that, you know, in in in, in the way that he hasn't been, you know, properly derailed for, for doing a lot of things. I mean, you know, whether it was birtherism yeah. or saying that there were good people on both sides in Charlottesville. I mean, look, this is not the first time we've heard these views. And if you look at his track record, it shouldn't surprise anyone accidentally or not accidentally that he's dining with someone like Nick Fuentes. Over the weekend, Elon Musk said that he would back Ron DeSantis potentially in 2024. I mean, you know, Elon Musk is a a figure who I maybe would rather not pay very much attention to. But clearly when he says these things, people do do listen. Does this feel like it could turn the tide a little more in uh, DeSantis' favor and away from Donald Trump? I'm a bit dubious of Musk's overall influence. I mean, look, he has a lot of Twitter followers. <laughs> That's by virtue mm. of being chief twit, as he used to call himself. I, I don't necessarily know if he's, you know, deciding for Republicans mm. or, or independents how they're going to vote in the next election. Plus, you know, at the moment, Donald Trump is the only person who's declared their candidacy. There may well be others. Nikki Haley for a start on the Republican side. Yeah, I just think it's too early to say. And Musk tweets a lot of things. I wouldn't be surprised if he backed yeah. someone else later. Does he have to sort of get his head around that maybe the US presidency is a bit different to affecting, you know, Dogecoin prices, basically? Well, if he wants to buy the US and try leading that as well, we can just see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> what a what a horrible thought. Yasmin, there there is uh, some cause for optimism for the United States, though, with the nil nil win mm -hmm. against England on Friday, as you <laughs> as you previously described it to me. Are you chanting "Soccer's coming home" yet? I look. I'm I'm very yeah. I thought America played very well. I, I was very excited um, by their their zero zero win. Um, as for, you know, I don't know what the U.S. chants are. I guess to be more appropriate, since this is the home of football, we'd probably say soccer's coming to visit to Disneyland in Florida, because that's <laughs> like the most British thing to do. Um, so, yeah, maybe I'll try to get that that mainstreamed. But yeah. I, I don't think I'll probably be chanting this World Cup, maybe next World Cup. Just to go full circle from the end of our conversation here on the football back to the beginning slightly as much as people you know would like England to do well I'm sure do you think there is a little bit of a worry that if we were to you know say if England and I don't want to drink it were to win the World Cup it could be a bit of a distraction for the government from everything else that is going on <laughs> for like a day maybe i don't know i mean i'd love to see it that'd be great but um i also have learned if i've learned anything from living in this country for the past five years it's that no one has that amount of optimism about football 
Um, so I don't think we need to worry about that, though I would love to see that. Yasmin, thank you for getting up early to join me today. Thanks for having me. That was Start Your Week, out every Monday morning from The Bunker. We love starting your week, and it is your support that helps us to do it. For as little as £3 a month, you can back us on Patreon. You'll get episodes early, all of them ad-free, and there is access to bonus merchandise. And as well as that, you get a shout-out on this show. On that note, here is Yasmin with today's names. A big Monday morning thank you to John Tomlinson, Helen Haywood, Linda Holloway, Caitlin Coxon, and Anthony Knox. Thanks, Yasmin. And thank you, listeners. That will start your week. Start Your Week from the Bunker was written and presented by Jacob Jarvis with Yasmin Sohan and was produced by Kasia Tomashevich and Jacob Jarvis. Audio production was by me, Jay Bailey, with music from Kenny Dickinson. The group editor is Andrew Harrison and The Bunker is a Podmasters production.